Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we approach your word this morning, and as we continue to study Romans, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth, that we would take it and embrace it and apply it to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Our focal passage this morning is in Romans 15. We're at verses 5 and 6. And since we had a break from our study of Romans due to Father's Day, let me remind you that Paul in chapters 14 and 15 is telling both the mature and the immature believer in the church to be graceful with one another. And you can see that as Paul opens up chapter 14 in verse 1. He said, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him, not him who eats, despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received them. Who are you to judge another one's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And if you remember, as I preached through chapter 14, I made this statement. Both groups are people that are pursuing a relationship with God. Chapters 14 and chapters 15 does not deal with a leniency towards sin. These are people that are pursuing God and the immature believers has a few of their hang-ups through the past as they're dealing with their past, either out of Gentile idolatry or Jewish legalism. And also, let me remind you that the immature believer does not stay immature. That through the indwelling of the Spirit, God sanctifies and moves the believer and they grow. The Christian life isn't about a static position of faith. We move along. In chapter 15, I left off at verses 1 through 4, where Jesus says to the strong believer that we are to be graceful to the immature believer sacrificially. If you look at verses 1 through 4, Paul says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we're to be sacrificial. We're to love and be graceful in a sacrificial manner using Christ as our model. Now we get to our focal passage, verses 5 and 6. And Paul wrote, Now may the God of patience and comfort 
Grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the New King James Version. What I want to do is read two additional versions because I think it will give you some added insight into our focal passage this morning. First, the ESV. Instead of of patience and comfort, what he says is, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So instead of may the God of patience and comfort, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The other version that I'd like to read is the Christian Standard Bible. And it says, now may the God who gives... Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind in one voice. So what's Paul addressing here? You can say that Paul is acknowledging that church life isn't always easy. Church life isn't always easy. This is why he says, God gives you endurance and encouragement. So if you take 14 and 15 together, as Paul is dealing with the mature and the immature believers coming together and worshiping together in a worship setting, he's saying you need endurance and you need encouragement. I can't tell you how many people I know who were in ministry and became disillusioned because they got into ministry with a misconception of how their life was going to be. And I've seen it both with people that are in the vocation of ministry They fill a pulpit or they're on staff somewhere. I've also seen it in the laity as people say, I want to do this or that for the Lord. And invariably, as you get involved and you're working for the Lord, you quickly realize that it's not all easy. One just has to look at the letters of Paul, at the Pauline epistles, to realize that churches are faced with challenges. It's part of serving. That's all Paul dealt with, is problems. And there's a reason why that Paul wrote in Galatians 6, verse 9, and let us not grow weary... While doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. He goes on in verse 10 in Galatians 6 and says, Therefore, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Don't grow weary. Now, why do you tell someone that? Because there's a chance that you're going to be weary. And he recognizes this. Now, too often what I have seen is people hit a roadblock or they come up against a trial within the church. They use that as their opportunity to back away. I'm going to stop. And I thought about that in my own personal life. Kathy and I were going to a large church when we first got married. I was teaching young married Sunday school. All of a sudden, we had a person that came in and said that they were going to start a mission church. And then they asked me to teach Sunday school at this mission church. And I had a great Sunday school class. I had a large Sunday school class. But I felt that God was calling me to go to give up my large class that I enjoyed teaching and to go and start a mission Sunday school class. So I went from teaching about 20 people on a Sunday and he said, I've got all of these names and you're going to reach out and people are going to be here. It's going to be great. And so he gave me a stack of names and I called all of these people and all on the premise that we'd have people attend. And for the next 18 months, I taught two people. It was always two people. They were two lovely people. It never changed. It was always two people. But then the pastor told me to start filling in for him on Sundays, which I did. And so I started supply preaching. And then unfortunately, that pastor got caught in an egregious sin. And at that point, I was extremely disillusioned. And it tripped me up. And then we had a back-to-back experience of that in another church. I would not be in this pulpit today if I had not gone to a mission church and given up my Sunday school class, if I had not started supply preaching. You can't back away. You don't serve men. You don't serve an institution. You serve Jesus Christ. And when you serve in His kingdom, you are going to encounter trials and tribulation. And that is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, starting in verse 1, he said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Let me read that verse again in verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you right now that the moment you say, I'm going to 
do more in the church. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. It isn't sweetness and light. There's always, there's always something that you will encounter. And the more that you work and the more that you're dedicated, the more you're going to find that out. It comes along with the territory. So you can't back away. Now, if you think back of what I read in the ESV, in the CSB, it says that we have to live in harmony, in harmony with one another. This doesn't just mean that we all get along. Let's look at this in context. Remember in chapter 14, you had weak Gentiles that did not want to revisit their idol past by eating meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols. You had weak Jews who couldn't give up their Saturday Sabbath. They were dealing with their past. So you had all of these groups coming together, becoming Christians. So within the church, you had strong believers, you had immature believers. By the way, That's a sign that the church is evangelizing. We should have immature believers. It's it's something that the church is to be about, is to equip the saints. But you also have to recognize that as you bring together people from different past, different backgrounds, that have overcome sins of the past, that they're going to have different maturity levels, and there's a potential for conflict. Now, he tells us to live in harmony or unity. Now, how do you do that? Well, our focal passage tells us, verse 5, Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. The ESV says, in harmony, in accord with Christ Jesus. There's our answer. In harmony, in accord with Christ Jesus. What does in accord mean? Well, you look that up in the dictionary, and in accord means in complete agreement. In complete agreement. So Paul is telling the church, yes, you've got these trivial matters over here as you're dealing with your past, but Overall, the church should be in accord with Christ Jesus. In other words, they are like-minded. Now, it tells us that we should have one mind in one mouth. One mind in one mouth with everyone else in the congregation. Now, if I have that, you've got unity. That is how you have unity. Unity is not getting along. Unity is not about everyone in church being your bosom buddy. But most people think that unity is about having friends. And in fact, if you look at a recent Barna poll, Barna has this poll that he published. Of course, he's a Christian pollster. He's always polling Christians. And he has this poll, and the article was titled, Christians Find More Unity at Home and with Friends Than in Church. That was the title. 
Christians find more unity at home and with friends than in the church. Let me read you what he said. Where are Christians experiencing unity, however they choose to define it? So he's not asking what your definition of unity is. He's saying, are you having unity? And he's leaving that definition of unity up to the person answering the poll. Where are Christians experiencing unity however they choose to define it? And then he tells us about three in five Christians, 61%, report experiencing unity most often in their homes, while 48% say they experience this in their friendships. Just over one in three, 35%, say unity is found in their church. So reading between the lines of the Barna poll, what most people in the poll, now these are Christians. Keep in mind, these are Christians. This isn't someone off the street who doesn't know Christ. So as Barna is asking Christians, do you have unity? The implication here is that most of the Christians are defining unity as being a buddy. And they're saying, I am not feeling like I have a buddy at church. In fact, another Christian poll, as I was doing my research, that I found quite concerning is that 40% of Christians say that if the church went totally online, if their church went totally online, they would stop attending altogether. I guess they don't feel like they have a buddy at church. The church isn't about having a buddy. Now that could be a side product, right? But you have to get back on what is unity. Let's look at our focal passage again. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not that I've got a friend that likes to do the same things that I do, that has the same hobbies. We have that here in the church. It's great. But that's not unity. It says like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity is achieved when you are in accord and everyone else is in accord with Christ in his teachings. Unity is Christ-centric. Unity is Christ-centric. So as we come together, and you think we still have generational differences here, right? We still were born in different decades, right? As we come together to worship, as we come together to fulfill the mission of Christ, it is built upon a Christ-centric view. I have a real problem, as I've voiced before, hobby churches. What's a hobby church? And there's different flavors. You've got the cowboy church movement. You've got the motorcycle group movement. You've got the fishing group movement. And you've got these churches that go and they go, well, this is my hobby, so this is where I'm going to go to church. That is not scriptural. I'll debate it all day long. Unity is based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his truth and his teaching. It is not my hobby. It's about Jesus. And there's a Christ-centric view. And in fact, 
You want to see a healthy church? Give me a group of people that have come from different classes, different races, different points of life, different educational backgrounds, all together in lifting up their voices in one accord towards Jesus. My friend, that is unity and it surpasses the rest of the world. It is Christ-centric. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Is unity just accepting that Jesus is? Is that unity? Well, let me remind you what Jesus said in John fourteen six. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say that Jesus is a way. He didn't say that Jesus is a truth. He said that he is exclusive. Everybody that wants to paint Christianity as an inclusive religion, it's not. It's an exclusive religion. It's built upon the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. His truth is exclusive. And it also is not fashionable. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he doesn't change. Now, if you've lived long enough, and when you think about that word fashionable, we've seen all types of different fashions, haven't we? There's this picture of me that my mom had, and I had this really wide, white, patent belt with your belt buckle had like four or five different prongs, and so you had all these holes on your belt, and then I had some white patent shoes, and I had maroon pants, and this crazy paisley shirt with this big collar. If I wore that today, you'd think it was a clown show, right? Fashions change. There's this picture of me in my first car. I'm standing up the bumper and I've got short shorts with these really tall tube socks all the way to my knee. Fashions change. Christ isn't fashionable. He doesn't change. His truth is the same. And it surpasses all generations. In other words, you should, and let me highlight the word should. If you and I had a time machine, we should be able to go back in time and go to a church and sit in that church and have the same doctrinal views and belief as we do right now because Jesus doesn't change. He is the same. Now, you may say, well, what does that have to do with unity? The only way that you can have unity is by having doctrinal integrity. So in other words, it's not whether I like to ride a horse, ride a motorcycle, fish, be in a car club... It is what do I believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? 
and is the teachings in truth. Not that just Jesus is. The demons believe and tremble, right? Not that just Jesus is. But am I following the teachings and truth of Jesus in my life? And I think that you'll agree with me when I make the statement that we are living in a time where you have had doctrinal disintegration. I've lived long enough to know that when I was in school and started coming to a certain mature level of Christian thought, that I had friends in different denominations and the things that you would argue were the doctrinal views of Lord's Supper, the doctrinal views of baptism, and that was pretty much it. The basic premises of the faith, what Jesus required of us, the teachings and truth of Jesus were commonly accepted across denominational lines. We are living in a time where you have had doctrinal disintegration. What do I mean by that? Think about the vast different views among the denominations that deal with who's qualified to fill the pulpit. What's the church's view on LGBTQ? Is there unity in that? No. There's been doctrinal disintegration. So the question is, is who moved? Because that's a valid question. Is Jesus fashionable? Did Jesus move? Or did the church move? The church moved. And let me prove my point. When you go to Revelation, where the letters to the churches, where most of the churches on track or off track? Off track. Why were they off track? And we can go through and look at the different letters to the churches. You had the lukewarm church. You had all the different churches with all the different problems. You had the loveless church and all of that. But if you really want to boil it down to what were the church's problems, the church's problems were they took their eyes off Christ. I don't care what their problem was. That's a symptom. So they all had different symptoms. But the problem was they took their eyes off Christ. That is where we are at today in America. We have all these different views regarding our culture among the churches. And that proves that there has been doctrinal disintegration. The church has taken their eyes off of Christ. When your eyes are on Christ, you have unity. You have unity. And then, just as Paul outlined, with one mind and one mouth, everyone is on the same page. Think about that. I remember at one point I had somebody tell me, oh, you need to study all the world's religions. You need to know what Hindus believe. You need to know what Wiccans believe. And they go through the list. I said, no, I don't. 
And they said, why? I said, because I already know the answer. What's the answer? The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is Christ. And when you think about when the churches all get on one page and they have one mouth and one mind, and it relates to how we approach culture and all of these things according to the teachings and truth of Jesus Christ, when the church is on one page, when there's a unified voice, what do we do? We glorify God. We glorify God. We glorify God in two different ways. One is, as we glorify God, we have one accord with Jesus Christ. We have one mind. We have one mouth. There's unity in the church. There's unity in the approach to society and proclaiming the teachings and truth of Jesus Christ. And people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you have revival. Boy, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? And my argument is there's got to be revival in the church before there's a revival in society. My friends, if you're going to have revival, the church has to clean house. There has to be doctrinal integrity. But boy, wouldn't that be wonderful? For the church to be unified, to where we have one mind and we have one voice and we're glorifying God and people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's another way. And that is, we glorify God by staying true to His Word, regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. And if I would venture to say, what do I think is going to happen? I would say the latter. That we're living in a time where standing up for your beliefs in Jesus Christ, just as He told us, comes with great cost. It comes with great cost. Can you glorify God in that? Absolutely. And the church needs to come together and we need to have a unified mind and mouth and stand for the teachings and truth of Christ no matter what it costs us. He told us. It's not hidden. He told us that there would be a cost. He told us. We need to be prepared for it. And in our upcoming sermons here in the next several weeks, we are going to talk about in detail what it means to glorify God. Because that's why we were created. We were created to glorify God. And here as Paul ends these verses, we're just at the top of approaching and studying this idea of glorification. But we need to pray for unity. Unity among the churches, not among friends, but a doctrinal unity that is for the praise and glory of God. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we just praise you that you've given us an exclusive truth that is always true, always reliable, never changes, never moves. And I pray, Lord, that we might embrace it. I pray that it might be the way in which we live our life. I pray, Lord, that we might proclaim this truth to a lost and dying world so that they might have the life that is promised to believers in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd use us, that we would be vessels to be used in your kingdom 
to proclaim your truth. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone listening who's never surrendered their life to Christ, that they might surrender today and have life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.